a listener production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. I'm in the home studio for this ep and my guest is in Monaco. He splits his time between Europe and Australia taking care of automotive and racing business interests. Ryan Walkinshaw is still buzzing after winning the 2021 Bathurst 1000. In many ways he considers this one the first proper great race trophy that he's been a part of. His drivers, Chas Mostert and Lee Holdsworth and the Walkinshaw Andretti United crew were dialled in from the moment practice began at Mount Panorama last December. Now, this conversation is a little shorter than many of my recent pods. That's because he's just come back from holidays. Ryan actually messaged me on Christmas Eve and said, hey, do you want to do this now? After a massive year for both of us, I thought it best to let him just enjoy his break in Mexico, where he was staying at an exclusive hotel that was once owned by Pablo Escobar. He's gearing up for a cycle with mates as we prepare to record this, and that's important as he endeavours to improve his lungs after a serious battle with COVID. He opens up on that, the different management style he has compared to his late father Tom, and much more. You'll get a sense of the intelligent young business leader here who has dabbled successfully in cryptocurrency too how competitive he is, how hungry he is to get back to number one in the supercars pit lane, and why the loss of Holden just made him more determined on both the automotive and racing side of the business. There is time for a bit of fun too. That's his personality. And we begin by talking about the crazy blonde hair he got to celebrate the great race. I'm now in that phase where I've got to either commit to getting it dyed again, blonde, or letting it grow out and looking terrible for about <laughs> four or five months. Um, I've managed to avoid Chaz giving me a hard time about not committing to the mohawk as well. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this as a win um, because I think it could have been quite a big loss if I'd uh, if I'd gone full committed to the uh, to shaving the sides of the head and letting the top grow out and go all floppy. So. Um, and as you said before the podcast, Greg, it's not exactly uh, a, a good aesthetic having a blonde half blonde, half brown-haired mohawk around here. It's uh, it's quite rare. Yeah, quite rare for Monaco, I would imagine. Normally, <laughs> Ryan, I start these chats with um, with uh, early life stuff, and we may dabble with that later, but I really want to focus on the now, and that is the, the uh, wrap-up of Bathurst. Now, with a bit of time, winning in December 2021, achieving that feat must have felt enormous in in the whole comeback fight back etc how did it feel um yeah pretty amazing um it kind of felt a bit surreal as we were sort of counting down the laps towards the end and um you know with you know sort of 10 laps to go and i was it was it was uh it was just getting a little bit anxious because we just didn't know what was going to happen we've lost the race before um with garth getting taken out by scott mclaughlin um when he probably was going to win it i think we had about 11 or 12 laps to go in that race so you know, we've seen so many other drivers as well lose it in the last uh, in the last stint. Um, you know, the anxiety sort of raised uh, rose quite aggressively. And then, obviously, when we came over the finish line, uh, we're coming over the finish line. Luffy grabbed me and said, like, "Come on, mate, we've won. Let's go clap it." And we sort of ran out, and that's when it all sort of sunk in. And obviously, everyone was very emotional. Um, you know, I'd won Bathurst the first year that my dad died, but um, in all honesty, that was no effort for me. You know, I just sort of taken over and was still pretty wet behind the ears. That was still. 
uh, a victory which was more of a hangover from what he did as opposed to what I did. So um, this was sort of the one I feel was, you know, a lot more of uh, what, you know, me and, and the team that we've built over the last few years, uh, you know, really managed to achieve. So, um, you know, super, super emotional and excited and happy, but, uh, you know, also incredibly proud of, of all the good people in our team. I know what they've been through. I know how much we've worked towards trying to achieve that. Um, and uh, you know, there's no there's no better group of people in pit lane, or no more deserving group of people in pit lane, in my opinion, to have uh, to have won that weekend. What did Zach Brown say when you spoke to him after the race? Uh, it was pretty good. Yeah, he was pretty he was pretty excited, pretty happy. He was just casual. casual uh, Zach as always. He was he was very happy, and then uh, uh, gave me a bit of shit to remind me that I shouldn't get a big head and uh, all that sort of thing. So um, as he normally does, <laughs> um, and Michael as well was you know very very happy and over over the moon. You know, one of our big things was that um, when we did this partnership, you know, bringing Bathurst was a a big thing we wanted to tick off, um, and it took a little bit longer than we hoped and. Uh, we can thank COVID and, uh, you know, the team going through a pretty tough time when Mega Fuels went bust uh, halfway through the season, which, you know, put so much of our plans, uh, you know, in, uh, in, 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 you know, behind where we wanted to be. Um, but, you know, getting, finally getting a Bathurst win was, um, was a big accomplishment for what we wanted to do together. And uh, we've got two more left. One's team's championship and one's driver's championship. So it's one box ticked and two more to go. Lots of pieces of the puzzle were put into place um, well before December 2021, right? I, I think I read somewhere you talked about it being almost a like a six-month process and probably even more than that where you just you targeted wanting to win that race. Um, it's a race that that can seesaw uh, so much from an, an emotional point of view, from the rare things it often throws up. Um, but all week, Ryan, that car, that outfit, that you were just on it. You were tested, though, with that tyre issue and things like that. But but by and large, it was a mighty week, mate, wasn't it? Yeah, it was It was one of those weeks, it was just everything was going our way and we we're kind of wondering at what point um, we were going to chip over ourselves or something was going to come and smack us in the back of the head and uh, and remind us, because, you know, that's what Bathurst does, right? Um, doesn't matter how, how fast you are, doesn't matter how well you're driving, um, something will inevitably happen. It's, it's the beauty of that race and also the curse of it. And, um, you know, we uh, were pretty much uh, fastest or top sort of three or four fastest in, in every practice session. And, and in all honesty, we, we, did, we did think we were going to be pretty quick. We didn't know we were going to have that much pace um, and have, you know, that good tyre life and, and so on. But um, we were pretty confident we were going to be relatively fast there and certainly in the fight. Um, and you're right, it was a lot of work that went in the back, uh, went on in the back uh, for in the background for, for, for that race. Um, it was it was more than a six month process, but the last sort of six months we focused a lot of the uh, a lot of the work we were doing um, throughout the year. We focused that just purely towards Bathurst, and um, had to sacrifice a few bits and pieces in, in different races as well. Um, you would have noticed at City Motorspark, Motorsport Park, sorry, we were a little bit up and down. Um, once we realised that that track was just not you know very suited to us, um, that's when we started. You know, refocusing uh, the last sort of two events there on uh, on, on Bathurst and, and what we wanted to try and understand from the car to uh, support what we were doing uh, back in Clayton and uh, and walk towards uh, walk towards Bathurst as, as positively as we could do. The podcast is uh, very much about people, but also about significant machines. So you've sold the car, you've sold the car. Was it hard to do that 
in the wake of the win and and how much of a, a fight did kind of Zach put up because I, I gather he wanted to keep it is that correct well we actually we actually pre-sold the car so um yeah. we in, in in the US it's it's not an unusual model and it's one that Andretti used where they actually pre-sell their cars um uh well before the season or when they or when they first build them and uh the idea is that you know you get quick cash in now for the car for the assets and which always you know the teams always want and um, you know, and a potential investor is buying a car for a certain amount of money that, if it's successful, uh, you know, will pretty rapidly increase in value. Um, and obviously, this car, uh, you know, had a pretty big win at, at Bathurst, and uh, the values probably increased dramatically. And um, and Zach messaged us, and he was like, oh, "I want to buy that car." And I was like, uh, <laughs> "Sorry, dude, it's uh, <laughs> it's already it's already sold," you know. Uh, it's, that, that cash is already in the business and it, it's already being used. Um, so he's like, okay, we need to introduce me to the guy. We need to go and try and do a deal. So I actually don't know what's going on there, but knowing Zach, if uh, if there is a deal on the table, he'll be uh, he'll be he'll be flat out trying to uh, trying to win it. So um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen there, but uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it's always one of those things. You know, a little bit of regret when you sell a car and it it, uh, it does well and the value increases and you can sell it for more, but. Uh, in all honesty, we've got our we've got our model. It's how we uh, run our business, and we're pretty happy with it. And you know, the exact point of what we do with pre-selling cars is exactly for that purpose. You know, an investor can come in and buy a car for a decent amount of money, but not too much. Um, you know, fair and reasonable value for a new supercar. And um, you know, he takes the risk going forward, and also takes the rewards. So um, you know, it, we'll continue using that model going forward, even though sometimes it may hurt us a little bit when uh, the success is pretty strong and the value probably increases quite a lot. Definitely. You brought up your late dad there a moment ago. I think he passed away, mate, if I'm right, 11 years ago, not long after the Bathurst win. What do you, what, what, would, what would he have made of that? What would he have thought of that? Because you have put your own moniker. It's a lot of people that are involved in this, obviously, not just you, but, but you have been able to put your own moniker on it, as you said before, on the business and, and then on this win. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he, he's, uh, he would have... You know, probably done things a lot differently than I would have done when I first got involved. But there was, um, you know, a huge amount of shit that was thrown at us as a team. A lot of which I could talk about, a lot of which I can't, unfortunately. But um, you know, the team's been through a lot, um, and you know, you'll have you'll have seen firsthand um, going through some of the big peaks and troughs that we've had over the over the last sort of decade. That mountain was what uh, my dad, the first place my dad raced in Australia, is what made him fall in love with Australian motorsport, and it was really the catalyst that drove him to. Uh, to set up the Holden racing team and, and Holden special vehicles and uh, and create what he did down here. Um, so it's got a pretty important value in, in you know, my family's life and our history. And uh, it's something they've always wanted to continue. And it's something that I hope we can continue to build on going forward. Um, you know, it's only a little mountain in the middle of New South Wales where a few cars go racing on every single year, but it's a pretty special mountain. Um, and it means a lot to my family. So, um, yeah, I think he would have been pretty, uh, pretty happy and quite proud of what the team accomplished because... Uh, you know, he'll have also known if he was around, uh, you know, a lot of the, the challenges that we went through to get there. Have you got a fond memory um, when you were growing up of, of maybe some of them were even before your time, mate, of some of the cars that he raced at the mountain himself? I, I often think to some of the, you know, the early days of, of the Holden racing team. And then even, you know, for me, when you go and click on YouTube now and you find the the Jaguar XJS. I mean, that thing is infectious. Yeah. I was going to say that yeah, one. Tell me, tell me how you feel about that. Um, well, it's pretty cool, isn't it? And you're looking at him, you know, ragging the hell out of that thing across a mountain without you know, any of the driver aids that <laughs> you know, a lot of racing drivers are, are used to these days. Walking shore, working at the wheel, 
through Toledo turn across the top of the mountain now to Castrol and McPhillamy Park coming on to Skyline and now dropping down towards the S's spectacular part of the circuit a hard-working part of the circuit and it's just awesome because, you know, that's, that's the beauty of some of the old machines. It's just how difficult they were to drive. Um, and it is something that, you know, I think we've lost a little bit of um, in some of the machines that we drive these days. And you look at GT3, which I'm not saying they're easy, they're easy to drive, but they're a, lot, a hell of a lot easier than, than driving those big old, uh, those big old pigs up mountains. But um, when you look at the aesthetic of them, they're so beautiful as race cars as well, right? You know, they're really quite special to look at. Um, I mean, you know how challenged they were to actually rag around a mountain like that and a track as complicated and as technically challenging as Bathurst. Um, it is pretty special. And, uh, you know, seeing the video with my dad's old orange racing gloves, which he used to race, um, is, uh, you know, is always, is always quite a good video to go and show people. And I, when I try and explain what the mountain is, I show them to, to my friends over here who have no idea what Bathurst is. I would normally show them two videos. I normally show them that video of, the, of Dad and the Jag. And... Uh, the video from, I think it was 2011, the This Mountain video uh, that I think Seven did, which was a very, very, very cool video that I thought was quite an emotive and, and passionate way to describe, uh, you know, what, what Bathurst is all about. And when, you know, they see those two videos, generally they sort of, they sort of get it. What's the greatest lesson you reckon he taught you in, in the motor racing business? And what's the thing that you've, you've done perhaps differently to your dad because, the, you know, the world, the motor racing landscape is is different and it keeps evolving. We we know that. What's what's the thing that you perhaps um, have done maybe a little bit differently and what's the thing that he, he taught you that, that stands in, in your mind? Uh, me and my dad definitely run our businesses differently. Um, my dad was much more of a dictator in how he went about it and, you know, and, and that can be very, very good if you've got someone who is, who is as savvy as my father. Um, you know, having that kind of uh, heavy top-down management approach um, can be very, very uh, successful if done the right way. Um, it also means you've got one point of failure there, right? If, uh, if, if you've got that kind of model and, um, and you know, my dad would probably be the first to say that, you know, some, there were some things that happened at TWR which probably could have been avoided if, uh, if, if you know, there were some better people around him that were, um, you know, not necessarily just guys that he could tell what to do but had more of a... Uh, sort of conducive and, and organic uh, management style where everyone sort of worked together a little bit more. Um, and I think that's what I've tried to do in our businesses, not just in the race team, but in, in the automotive business and, and the wider wall control group is, um, you know, one of my rules is, is never be the smartest guy in the room because otherwise why am I paying for someone else to be there to try and be a specialist in one subject and I'm still not being asked questions on things. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, big on um, empowering my people and making sure I get the right people and giving them uh, a lot of autonomy in their roles um, to be able to uh, accomplish what we want to do as a business. And yeah, it's a double-edged sword as well for the, for, the, for the people because in the management team, because you know, when you're given that kind of autonomy and that kind of trust and, uh, and you're delegated to do your job without uh, me coming in and micromanaging people, you know, if, you, if, you, if you do fuck things up, you know, there's no one else to blame but yourself. You can't go and blame the top guy or, or anything else like that. So, um, but it also means that you know if you do things right, um, it's very very rewarding. And uh, I find that that's the best way to run the business. And I think that's where a lot of our success off the racetrack has come on, uh, come from uh, in the automotive business and, and the wider group. Um, and in the race team, um, you know, we sort of tried a few different things. We tried. To, we've had a few different uh, team principles in the team. Um, 
since I took over. But um, you know, Bruce Stewart uh, working alongside Carl Foe and, and the wider engineering team, and and uh, you know, some old people like Macca who've been around in the team for a long a long time as well. Um, you know, we've seen a bunch of different ways the team can be run, but this way seems to be the one that's working the best. Um, we've got a really, really tight knit group of people now in the team, and um, you know, we, uh, we we moved a few people on uh, over the last few years who um, who you know didn't have the right uh, ethic and 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 uh, the right commitment to the team, should I say? And um, brought some new people in, and, and you know, it's been a really, really fantastic change, and. Um, you know, a lot of that comes down to uh, to Bruce's management style and and the management style from the other leaders in the team like Maka and 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 Carl Foe and so on. So, um, you know, I don't I think that that empowering your people management style is 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 what's got us to where we are today, um, as opposed to me just being a dictator and dumping my fist and telling everyone what to do. Yeah, does that make sense? Hey, <laughs> it does. It does. And I, I I've never sort of really. Um, I'm sure you have to make tough decisions and 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 you know. There are difficult moments, no doubt, but I'd never sensed that that style in you, mate. That that um, that that uh, di- you know, dictate uh, dictator style is just not not what I've I've witnessed in, in you, and and it's very collaborative what you do at times when we're in the pit lane and and so on. You do you do manage in the midst of all that to squeeze in a bit of character too. So I was doing <laughs> a I was doing a report at Bathurst, and and someone messaged me, you know, an hour or so later, and here am I with the serious face on, which I always have, as you know. Doing the doing the chat, and then you you kind of uh, like moonwalked through the background <laughs> and looked at the camera <laughs> and took and took everyone's eyes off what we were doing. That's just that's just naturally you, mate, isn't it? Yeah, I, l- I like to take the piss out of myself and out of every- everything else going on around me quite a lot of the time. Um, life's too short to be boring and stale, so uh, if there's an opportunity to have a laugh, I generally try and take it um, if it's in the right environment. So uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that video was quite funny. Actually, I didn't think actually it came out it was going to come out as good as it did, but I've still got that on uh, on my phone. It was quite a funny little little one. It's gold. Did you ever contemplate race driving yourself? And what were you? Did you get your license first go? Were you a good as a good as a driver straight up? I, I I did a little bit of karting, and and I was I was I was quite I was quite decent. But this is you know back when I was a kid, so you never really know. Um, but uh, I wanted to get into racing, but then my dad uh, my dad blocked me. I was really good in school, and I was a straight A student. And my dad refused to um, let me take off uh, time from school to go and do that. And in, in Europe, um, you know, if you're going to go and commit to it, you know, you're pretty much leaving sort of every Thursday night from school and uh, and, and taking the sort of Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. And um, and he didn't want my, my grades to suffer. And uh, the school I went to as well, we had Saturday school. So we, we had a six day school week. Um, we only had one day off, which was Sunday. So you're committing to doing that and you're as a excuse me, committing on Saturday afternoons to missing um, missing sports and, you know, you wouldn't be able to play any rugby or cricket or football or anything else like that as well. So it was kind of very, very disruptive to a school life if you're going to go commit to motorsport, as I'm sure lots of people in here have, have, will have noticed or will have done themselves if they're listening and have, and have, uh, have tried to have a crack at, at racing. Um, so I wasn't allowed. Dad put a, uh, uh, made it very clear that he wasn't going to let me uh, let me go into racing. Um, he wanted me to go and run the businesses eventually. Um, but my brother races, so he, um, my brother hated school um, and uh, it was very, very different to me in that sense. Um, and uh, my dad, you know, let him race and Sean's, Sean's been racing uh, in Europe and in Japan in, uh, in GD300 over there in the Super GT category uh, for the last few years. Um, so he's sort of doing the racing side of what my dad did and I'm doing the business side of what my dad did.
Hey all, welcome back to Rusty's Garage, and welcome to 2022. We've got a big year ahead. If anyone's a fan of Drive to Survive, oh boy, do we have a good episode for you. Winky face emoji, Netflix emoji. Were you always kind of entrepreneurial from a, a younger age? Because you did a, a few other things. I mean, you dabbled in music and DJing as well, so you indulged that side of the passion. But were you always entrepreneurial? Yeah, definitely. So I, I, uh, I was, uh, long story, I was going to get a, to Oxford, but I've grown up in Oxford, went to school in Oxford all the way through my uh, my teens, uh, went to college, and then I was going to apply to Oxford University, but then started to rebel a little bit and wanted to go and have a life outside of just uh, the sort of, OX1 postcode um, and ended up choosing to go to Newcastle and doing marketing and management. And to be honest, it was a, it was a bad choice because it was a pretty poor, uh, pretty poor subject. Um, but off the back of that, just started doing uh, my own businesses, ran our own events, ran our own nights. And, um, you know, I just, uh, I've always enjoyed setting businesses up and, and having a crack and, and doing work. Um, similar to what I guess my dad uh, had as well in his, in his, um, uh, in his life, just wanted to get on and, and start doing things. Um, so I think that sort of served me quite well. I mean, being a DJ probably didn't exactly uh, add any value to my life and what I'm doing today. But the background stuff around you know doing event management and uh, and and that sort of thing was um, was pretty pretty good. You learn about all these things you didn't actually learn about at school um, by trying to be an entrepreneur from a young age. You learn about finances and accounting um, and just, you know, the, the, the shrewd parts of businesses like negotiations and stuff like that. You know, the quicker you learn that, I think the better. Um, and it's some things that some people don't learn or don't have as a, as a role in their jobs for quite a long period of time. Um, whereas you're running your own businesses and, and having a crack yourself, um, you know, you're kind of thrust into that environment where you have to just get on with it and you learn the hard way, um, but you learn it fast. And um, I think, yeah, if the benefits, the positives that came out of of, uh, of everything I did when I was at university and DJing and stuff was that I understood how businesses were to, to a certain degree. Um, and I think that probably was, uh, was quite positive for when I actually had to take over the family business. As we talk to you now, you are uh, dressed, ready to go cycling with some some friends in, 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 in Monaco. But I am kind of pleased about that because you went through covid Right. And, and in Australia now, a lot of people are finally at that phase where they actually know someone who has COVID for, you know, maybe 18 months ago, you would be relying in this part of the world on knowing someone in Formula One or MotoGP or something along those lines. We didn't really know too many people locally that had suffered from it. And, and so when it came up in conversation, I would say, hey, listen to this guy. Like he's, he's actually been there. How much did that knock you around? Uh, you talked at the time, I think, in one post that I saw about it damaging your your lung capacity. And are you on the the bounce from that? Are you are, are you coming back from that? Yeah, I was just one of those unfortunate people um, that had a bit of a bad time. Had normal COVID for a week, felt pretty gross, um, and then ended up feeling a little bit better for a couple of days. And then I got second stage COVID, which is COVID pneumonia. Um, which is um, actually a, a bacterial infection that normally your lungs would just get rid of as if it wasn't um, it wasn't a problem. But because your lungs are so stressed and inflamed and have uh, got the damage left over from COVID, then um, it sets in uh, quite badly and you get a bacterial pneumonia in your lungs, um, which is pretty horrendous. Um, and uh, the annoying thing was that the helplines that you have here, you've got to, you get a phone call from a doctor every single day when you test positive from COVID and you've got to isolate for 14 days at home and, all that sort of, and every day they give you a call to you know, ask how you're going and all that sort of stuff. 
I was sort of telling them my symptoms and I had it for a temperature of like, you know, 40.5 degrees and 41 degrees and stuff, which is getting pretty serious. And uh, I was telling them, they're like, no, 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 stay at home. And eventually um, Haley bought an oximeter for me, which is a device you put on your finger and uh, it uh, detects your O2 levels in your blood. And uh, it arrived the next day from Amazon, put it on my finger, it was feeling pretty grubby. Um, and uh, this is about sort of five days of this sort of second stage illness. And, um, and it was down at like 92. And uh, I was like, oh, 92 sounds pretty good. 92 sounds, 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 sounds not too bad at all. And we sort of Googled online and they were like, 92, you need to go straight to the emergency room because you know, you've got oxygen depletion in your blood. I was like, oh shit, okay, we should probably go to hospital. Uh, I ended up going to hospital, nearly passed out as I was walking into the hospital, which couldn't breathe very well. Um, and the lungs were just very, very, uh, were just really struggling. And they you know, kept me in there for sort of 24 hours, put me on a drip and felt amazing afterwards. You know, once you've got the big antibiotics in you um, and rehydrated and, uh, and got the treatments, um, you know, it was very, very quick turnaround. And then I just had a few more days of feeling pretty shit, but with some good drugs that uh, managed to relieve a lot of the symptoms and, and got me on the mend. But unfortunately, the damage was done. So when you get pneumonia, the uh, inflammation in your lungs uh, can cause scar tissue or fibrosis. Um, and unfortunately, I just, I just had too much uh, inflammation for too long. And um, my right lung has got a fair bit of scar tissue, which has screwed up my, um, my lung capacity a little bit, which is, you can't fix it. It's just something you've got to do. You've just got to train uh, and get your fitness at a level that compensates for the reduction in your lung capacity. Um, but um, yeah, it's just something you've got to deal with. It's uh, and, and, and bizarrely, it's not that much of an uncommon story over here. There's a lot more young people that have had this sort of experience than, than people realize. Um, and the more doctors I've gone and seen specialists and stuff like that over the last year since I had it, you know, they all say the same thing. They said, you know, if only people actually knew just how many people, even young people, have ended up having this, they'd probably take COVID a little bit more seriously. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm still a rare case. Most people have COVID and, and have, you know, have had a pretty easy time or a very manageable time, should I say. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to pretend that it's, uh, it's, it's the normal thing, but, um, yeah, it does happen and it happens to young people as well, which uh, I try and remind people when they're trying to uh, pretend that COVID's not serious or, or just a flu or whatever other bullshit people say. That's the end of part one of my podcast with Supercars team owner Ryan Walkinshaw. Part two is already in the library. If you want to hit the gas on it, you can right now. Why Chas Mostert was the perfect fit to spearhead the team's revival and some of the fresh faces now in place to help complete that. We'll talk a little bit about Walkinshaw performance too. You may be surprised to learn just how big the automotive side of the business has become. And tool for the job or a special attachment just how he feels about that Bathurst winning car listener